Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a doctor explains what's important about the preoperative physical for patients facing surgery. The big point is um, cardiovascular, right? So we're looking at cardiovascular health and we're making sure there's nothing going on with your heart and your lungs. The chief of endocrinology, diabetes and metabolism tells about a possible connection between COVID-19 and diabetes. They're at very high risk for having bad outcomes if they get COVID, but there's no evidence that they're more susceptible to COVID. And a gynecologist provides an update on cervical cancer. Cervical cancer, the biggest risk factor that we know of is the human papillomavirus, or HPV for short. Um, and a majority of cervical cancers are caused by this virus. All that, plus a visit from the Healing Muse, after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll explore why some people with severe cases of COVID-19 develop diabetes. Then, we'll learn how to prevent cervical cancer. But first, what's important to know about the preoperative physical? Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Before they operate, surgeons generally ask patients to undergo a preoperative physical. We'll learn why and what's involved from Dr. Zachary Shepard. He's an assistant professor of medicine who specializes in internal medicine at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Shepard. No, it's good to be here. Now, are preoperative physicals recommended for all surgeries? Yes, in general, they are. Um, sometimes uh, younger patients don't necessarily need one, but they're still in generally recommended. And emergency procedures often don't have time to get one. So, but otherwise, if you have time to get one, they should be done. So, would a preoperative physical be needed for a surgery that doesn't require anesthesia? Not necessarily. I think that's the big point is anesthesia is the biggest risk most of the time when you're getting a surgery. So there are some surgeries like uh, dental surgeries and eye surgeries and things that are simple that don't require sedation that might not necessarily need a physical exam um, from someone who's able to do a preoperative evaluation. Uh, sometimes though, they will send you anyway based on some of the other medical problems you might have that you should probably make sure taken care of or well optimized before you go to surgery. Well, let's talk about what a person can expect if their surgeon asks them to get a physical beforehand. Is this something that's done weeks ahead of time or days ahead? How is that figured out? So the idea is that it should be a couple of weeks out. I think sometimes it works out that it's a few months out. Um, I think within six months is usually a good time frame that you still have. So say they sent you for a preoperative evaluation. After that evaluation, they're usually pretty good for six months or so. It depends on um, the person who does them. Sometimes they don't um, want it more than a month or a year or depend also depending on your comorbidities. So most of the time, though, it's pretty good. And you want to get it within a week and then have the surgery within a few weeks. I think that's ideal. Now, do people have to fast before they come for a preoperative physical or do, is there some preparation that they have to, to do? No, not at all. Not for the preoperative evaluation. There's no fasting or anything like that. Is there blood work involved? Sometimes there is blood work involved. Yes. So it depends on your comorbidities. Again, patients um, with certain at certain ages, patients with certain diseases like diabetes uh, should probably have some basic blood work. Um, you'll probably get more blood work than is required. Uh, a lot of people love to get blood work, even though it's not really all that necessary. Um, some people would disagree with me, but I think that the recommendations is um, pretty low on how much blood we take from people. So what are the blood tests looking for? Is, is there something in particular that could be discovered? I think the two main things that they're looking for is um, your kidney function and uh, whether or not you're anemic. I think those are two big ones they would be looking for. Um, it's, they usually send kind of a general panel that looks at your, it's a basic metabolic panel, kind of looks at your electrolytes and stuff, and then they'll send a uh, blood count to look at your 
you know, your white cells and your red cells, make sure you're not anemic. So sometimes it sounds like it might uncover something the person's unaware of, but it is also used to monitor people that have like a chronic issue. That's right. Um, Pre-ops do often find incidental, have incidental findings and we have to address those as well. All right, can you explain how the physical exam would be done? And does it differ depending on the type of surgery the person's facing? Yeah, not too much. So like you uh, pointed out earlier about the anesthesia, the big point is um, cardiovascular, right? So we're looking at cardiovascular health and we're making sure there's nothing going on with your heart and your lungs. So the basic exam, I think the minimal exam that you'll expect to see is listening to your heart and your lungs and making sure they don't have any uh, adventitious findings, especially if um, you have some already have some heart disease or you already have some lung disease, like you used to smoke and things like that. So those, that's the, the bare minimum that I think you would expect. Sometimes if they're going to be operating on your, you know, your arm or your eye, then it might look a little closer at whatever uh, area they're, you're going to be operated on. So pretty much everyone's going to get a cardiac, some form of a cardiac evaluation and some form of a, a lung assessment. Correct. And now during the time of COVID, everyone's being COVID tested as well. Does that happen for the pre-op? Yes, I believe that is happening. I'm not really in that part, in the loop on that. It's coordinated outside of what I generally do. Um, but yes, they usually get it a couple of days right before the surgery. Um, and I think the fairgrounds will be doing that soon or something. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Zachary Shepard. He's an internal medicine doctor at Upstate, and we're discussing what's important to know about the preoperative physical. So if the goal of the preoperative physical is to make sure a person is healthy enough to undergo anesthesia and surgery, what sorts of things are red flags that would signal to you that the person is not okay for surgery? So particularly uh, cardiovascular symptoms. So some people don't realize when they're getting short of breath more and more or something like that. So I would, I would one of the questions we all ask is, you know, do you have, are you able to walk up steps without getting too short of breath? Are you able to carry bags of groceries without uh, getting short of breath? Those are some of the standard questions because we're looking at your exercise tolerance. And if you have really good exercise tolerance, then you're good to go. And if you don't, then we might want to ask some more questions. Um, if you already have some heart disease, we might want to ask a few more questions. And what we're doing is we're trying to make sure nothing is going on um, with your cardiovascular system, essentially, so that you can tolerate anesthesia without complications. So what would be some of the most typical things that you might find with, with someone um, that would be a red flag or that would tell you that they would have to postpone their surgery for? Yeah, so ongoing chest pain, intermittent chest pain, um, particularly pressure. Um, I think people learn what chest pressure usually means, um, or uh, we call dyspnea on exertion, which means you get short of breath when you exercise or walk. Those are the big red flags. So those were things that would have to be sort of solved in some way before they could be cleared. Yes, correct. Um, and we don't actually say clear. We say, um, um, you know, uh, say uh, rich. We really don't. So we don't say clear because. That implies that everything's okay. What we say is we, you know, risk stratify people and then optimize them. Huh. So is it like a one to 10 scale or how does that work? <laughs> so actually that changed yeah, um, not that long ago, I think in 2016. Well, I guess I say it not that long ago, but that was five years ago. <laughs> uh, so uh, they used to say low, moderate and high risk. Um, but now it's just low and uh, elevated risk. So you know how language kind of changes over time to not make people scared? Because uh, sometimes when you would put high risk, that's okay. I mean, uh, you know, somebody that's high risk, that probably still okay to go to surgery. We still recommend, you know, they need this, right? But, you know, we just need to know that their risk is higher so that we know that, hey, you might need to go to the hospital after the procedure you're getting, or we know you're going to stay the night in the hospital after that, just because you're high risk, we want to keep an eye on you. So it's kind of a scale of one to two now. <laughs> well, there's some medical conditions, though, a person, say, for instance, with diabetes, maybe, are they going to come to you 
knowing ahead of time that they their diabetes probably would make them a higher risk person or or would it not necessarily be the case? So it's not necessarily the case. And you know, you if you get into the subtlety of what it all is, it's not kind of standardized the preoperative evaluation. You'd think that it's completely standardized. And it kind of is for cardiovascular, but not for everything else. So it doesn't include everything else. So how to come up with low versus elevated risk, it doesn't take into account a whole lot of other things, right? So there's actually five or six different um, um, scales that people use. These are medical tools that doctors use as assessed for assessment? Yeah, so you plug in all the values and it'll spit out a number and tell you, hey, this is their cardiac risk, right? But it doesn't, that doesn't really, to me, that didn't answer the question of what all we're doing, because there's so many other subtleties. People have liver disease, people have kidney disease, people have diabetes, you know, it's not just the heart and lungs. And although that is the dominant part, I think that it is good to take into account everything, the whole patient, you know, all the diseases they could have to give them a good assessment of what their expectations are and whether or not they should proceed with the surgery. Some of these surgeries are electives. Maybe it's better they don't do it, you know? So there's a lot, it sounds like, of, uh, you know, number values that are taken and put together to come to this decision. But it sounds like there's some human, I mean, you you are talking to this person and you're making, forming an impression about their ability to withstand surgery, right? Does that factor in somewhere? Oh, yes, most definitely. So, you know, the every single time you do it, everybody's just a little different. Everybody has just a little different background. Everybody explains things or talks to you just a little bit differently. So it really has to be personalized to that person. And I think if I gave anybody advice, though, or if you want to go undergo a procedure and you want to know that you're going to do well, it's exercise tolerance, we call it, right? So if you can tolerate exercise, like cardiovascular exercise, you're going to do well. I don't care what comorbidities you have. You know, the outcomes for people that can, you know, walk, you know, three or four miles or or run even, especially run, then you're going to do well, right? So So someone who might have an elective procedure in their future, they should uh, prepare for that and and sort of get in shape if they're not in shape already physically. (laughs) Yeah, I think I can recommend that everybody gets a little cardiovascular health. Even myself, I'm still working back on it since... I sat, you know, through COVID for the last year. I think I lost the last year. I don't know what happened to it. So now I'm going to get rid of the weight and go back to running. So let me ask you about medications, because a lot of people are taking a lot of different medications. Is that your responsibility to go over that in the preoperative exam? Oh, yes, definitely. And I often joke in the lecture I give on preoperative evaluation um, that I could give a whole nother lecture just on medications. And you probably wouldn't be able to finish, right? Like, uh, there's just so many medications out there. Um, And, you know, depending on people's comorbidities, they might be on a lot of medications. And comorbidities just means what disease, you know, different diseases people have, they exist together, right? Um, So I guess one of the big medicines we deal with a lot is insulin. And like you talked about with diabetes, you know, patients uh, uh, that are on long acting insulins especially need to be real careful because we stopped their food the night before. And, you know, if you stop calories and you're still getting insulin, that can be dangerous. So we have to be really careful. Um, there's all kinds of, you know, steroids we got to look at, beta blockers we got to look at, uh, all the all the meds. So everything that someone's on. So sometimes would a person be told you can't take this, you know, when you go into surgery? Yeah, they will we'll ask you to hold it. Sometimes um, like blood thinners, right? You, those are a big one as well. You know, you want to be careful depending on the surgery. Some of them, it doesn't matter. Other ones, it matters a lot. So we might ask you to hold uh, those. It might be a week ahead of time, like um, aspirin Plavix. Those are like antiplatelets, which, you know, prevent, uh, you know, people post uh, heart attacks and stuff get put on those, but they can't be on them because they make you bleed, you know? So you know, it's kind of a balancing act. So you hold off, you hold off um, medications, sometimes you decrease them, sometimes you hold them. Well, let me ask you, if you find something that really needs to be, you know, handled before a person can safely undergo surgery, what happens then? Do they go back to their physician or do you work with them to get things under control? So there's two main places that patients get preoperative evaluations. So it would be the outpatient setting, 
and then it would be in the hospital. I mostly do hospital medicine. So usually patients are in the hospital, they need some procedure that's not quite emergent, but needs to happen. And then they'll call us and we'll kind of follow along and help them kind of optimize the patient as they like to say, um, and make sure that those things do get taken care of or delay the surgery so that we can take care of it. Like the shortness of breath one I was talking about earlier, the chest pain. Uh, sometimes we'll want to do a, a stress test, um, like a, you know, where they walk on the treadmill and they monitor your heart. Um, so we'll, we might do that before we actually let people go to the um, operating room just to make sure nothing actually is happening. And so once that issue, whatever it is, is solved, they need to be evaluated again to make sure nothing else has come up in the interim, depending. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So in the hospital, that's a little easier because I'll see you the next day. I'll see you the next day. I'll see you the next day, right? Um, outpatient, you just have to reschedule. So, and that's why you want to do it a couple of weeks ahead of time is so that you can skip that appointment. Okay, we need to do this test, these tests, and then you come back in a week or we'll call you. You know, maybe those tests are great and we'll just give you the thumbs up over the phone and say, you know, uh, good luck at surgery. Well, well, this has been very informative. Thank you to Dr. Zachary Shepard. He's an assistant professor of medicine who specializes in internal medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a possible connection between COVID-19 and diabetes. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A small number of people with severe cases of COVID-19 are developing diabetes. Here to talk with me about the possible connection between COVID-19 and diabetes is Dr. Ruth Weinstock. She's a professor of medicine at Upstate who leads the Jocelyn Diabetes Center, and she's chief of the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at Upstate University Hospital. She's also the 2021 American Diabetes Association President, Medicine and Science. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Weinstock. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'd like to start with some general questions about COVID and diabetes. Are people who have diabetes more prone to contracting COVID-19? That's an excellent question. Uh, it turns out that people with diabetes are not more prone to catching COVID, um, but if they get COVID, uh, if they do are exposed to COVID and get and are infected, then they're uh, much more likely to have much more serious complications from the COVID. So they're at very high risk for having bad outcomes if they get COVID, but there's no evidence that they're more susceptible to COVID. And by bad outcomes, I mean more likely to be hospitalized um, uh, over the, in some studies three or more times more likely to end up in an intensive care unit on a ventilator or breathing machine. And unfortunately, about three times more likely to die. About 40% of the fatality, COVID fatalities in hospitals are people with diabetes. So their risk once they develop COVID is quite high. So uh, we are encouraging everyone with diabetes to get vaccinated and to take all the public health precautions, masks, social distancing, washing hands, et cetera. Now, does this uh, apply to people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes? And can you kind of give us a, a definition of each? Yeah, so it appears that no matter what type of diabetes you have, uh, your risk is very high. So this, this applies to both type 1 and type 2. And actually, the risk, uh, there are other risk factors that some people with diabetes have. So if you're older, if you have heart disease, if you have kidney disease, if you have high blood pressure, um, uh, if you're taking insulin, if your diabetes is not well controlled, meaning your uh, blood sugars are elevated, there's a test we use called hemoglobin A1C. If the A1C is over 7.5%, all of those are risk factors for uh, having more severe COVID illness if you do contract COVID. The difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes, um, the majority of people in the United States and worldwide have type 2 diabetes. And that's a, a disease uh, that is commonly associated with obesity, but 
not you don't have to be overweight or obese to get it. Um, well, the majority of people are, uh, as well as sedentary lifestyle, and it's heterogeneous. Um, they're actually probably subtypes within type two diabetes, but basically your body usually still makes some insulin, um, but it's resistant to the action of insulin so that you um, need more insulin to keep your blood sugars normal. And type 2 diabetes can be treated with uh, oral agents um, as well as non-insulin injectables in many people. So not everybody with type 2 diabetes needs insulin. And that's very different from type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes, which people think of as diagnosed in youth, and young people actually can have its onset at any age, including uh, adults of any age. And in that disease, it's called autoimmune. That means the body is fighting itself. It's destroying its own insulin producing cells. And those individuals definitely need insulin therapy, usually three or four injections a day or an insulin pump. So those, those are some of the, the differences. But uh, type two diabetes can occur in children, even though it's more common in adults and type 1 diabetes can occur in adults. Are COVID vaccinations equally effective in people with and without diabetes, do you know? Um, so far, as far as we know, it appears to be the case. Um, there have not been separate vaccination studies in people with diabetes, but uh, the vaccines were given to people with diabetes in the uh, clinical trials, and it appears from the uh, small numbers of people with diabetes, relatively small numbers who were given the vaccine, that it was equally effective. Now, I've heard that some hospitals are seeing an uptick in the number of people who are newly diagnosed with diabetes, and I wonder what you're seeing in central New York. So that um, that is also a very complex question. So any stress, any infection, can increase blood sugar levels and can, it's something we call stress hyperglycemia. And for people who have risk factors for developing diabetes, who maybe had pre-diabetes or were genetically susceptible to developing diabetes, they may be more uh, prone to actually develop diabetes with stress. In addition, a number of the medications that we use, particularly the steroid med medications, dexamethasone, that have been successfully used in people with COVID who are hospitalized and have severe disease, those medications are known to raise blood sugars. So uh, it, it is actually a very complex issue. COVID also causes inflammation. Um, and whether it can trigger autoimmunity in, for people who are prone to autoimmunity and type 1 diabetes is still an open question. Another open question is whether it can directly destroy insulin producing cells in the pancreas. So that is something that is being looked at very closely. Um, in the past, there have been viral infections that have been known to trigger autoimmunity and type the development of type 1 diabetes. And there also have been instances of direct damage to insulin producing cells. Whether either of those are happening right now with COVID is an area of active research. Um, whether numbers are really going up in terms of new diagnoses of diabetes prior uh, to entering the hospital, um, that is also a bit really honestly unknown. We are part of a large registry project that is looking at that. Uh, it's a bit unclear as to whether people um, are staying home longer because they're afraid to go to the hospital um, or it's a complicated question, but that is something that is also an active area of research, um, both in the US and worldwide, and we are contributing to uh, those data here at Upstate. Um, so let me, so if a person who has survived COVID-19 is now dealing with diabetes, it's not clear that it would have been caused by COVID-19. It might just be the stress of the situation contributed to the development. Yeah, it's, it is unclear. So there are um, there was one report published very recently where they actually looked at people who developed who were admitted to the hospital with COVID uh, had diabetes, which had not been previously diagnosed. They um, fortunately survived the COVID and were discharged home, and many of them were no longer had elevated blood sugars. Now, whether they'll be 
Whether they will redevelop diabetes in the future or not is unclear. Um, there also have been some patients, though, who have been admitted with new onset diabetes with the COVID and required diabetes medications when they went home. So, again, a lot we have to learn. We need to follow these individuals longer term to see if the diabetes is permanent um, and to see if they are at risk for developing diabetes in the future, even if it goes away. And there's precedent for that. So, for example, there's a type of diabetes called gestational diabetes. This is a type of diabetes that women develop when they become pregnant. They did not have diabetes before they conceived, but pregnancy um, is associated with the secretion of a number of hormones, and those hormones can raise your insulin requirements. And so there are some women who, it's like a stress test on the pancreas, and there, for some women, their pancreas cannot make enough insulin during a pregnancy. Normally, your insulin requirements go way up during pregnancy, and your pancreas can keep up with that. But if you can't, it's gestational diabetes. Typically, those women, after they deliver, their blood sugars return to normal, but they are at very high risk of developing diabetes in the future. Um, and again, it, it, they had the risk to, to start with. They had probably limited um, insulin secretory reserve. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, speaking with Dr. Ruth Weinstock, who leads the Jocelyn Diabetes Center at Upstate. So uh, some people that develop diabetes immediately after or months after surviving COVID-19, what are the symptoms that people may notice that would tell them, you know, something's going on and they need to, you know, see a physician? So many times uh, people with diabetes don't have symptoms and that's a problem. <laughs> um, if the blood sugars are not extremely high, they may, they may feel a little more tired, but not understand really why they're tired. I mean, there are many reasons why people are tired. <laughs> a lot of people are stressed, um, but other symptoms could be being more thirsty, urinating more often, having to get up more times during the night to urinate, um, uh, feeling more hungry, losing weight without trying to lose weight, having infections that don't heal. All of those are, are, um, are indicators that you better get your blood sugar checked right away. Now, if you had diabetes in the hospital, you were diagnosed with diabetes or your blood sugars were high when you were hospitalized with COVID, you did not have diabetes before that, and your blood sugars were normal on discharge, then I would regularly have it checked by your primary care provider. Do you think, is this something that might be able to be controlled through diet or do many of these patients require, you know, diabetes medications? And so that's going to vary also. Some people will require um, uh, pharmacological therapy, oral medications or injectable medications and others perhaps not. Again, it's a lot we have, have to learn about this and it depends on how much uh, insulin reserve ability they, they still have to make and secrete insulin. And I know you said that it's unclear yet whether uh, diabetes would, you know, be permanent or, or if it would resolve on its own. Um, what do you say to patients in this situation? Is there anything they can do to make it go away? Well, so um, for all patients, um, you know, when they get home and hopefully they're feeling better, uh, uh, that healthy diet is extremely important. Um, being physically active as best as you can, um, uh, not being sedentary. Um, to If they are overweight or obese, um, some weight loss can be extremely helpful. For someone who's obese, it doesn't mean necessarily they have to get back to a normal body weight, but even if they lost 10 pounds that over, you know, that could be over time, that could be extremely helpful. So healthy lifestyle is really important. If they're a smoker, definitely stop smoking. Um, those are, those are all uh, recommendations, lifestyle recommendations that can be extremely helpful. So we've heard that um, COVID-19 is this res mostly respiratory virus, but we do know that um, this virus SARS-CoV-2 um, can affect other organs of the body. Do we know specifically what it does or does it do anything to the pancreas? So there are conflicting reports on that as well. There have been studies that um, suggest that there is pancreatic damage in some patients with COVID infections. 
Um, and other reports, uh, it's less clear whether COVID actually is directly affecting the insulin producing cells. But again, that's an area of active research. We just don't have the answer yet. There's not enough people and we just haven't had the time to, to do what needs to be done to figure it out. Uh, yeah, and, and it's um, difficult to uh, discern whether there is direct damage to the insulin producing cells called beta cells. We don't biopsy pancreases. <laughs> There's some danger associated to doing that. So, um, so that is not something that's done. What other questions do you as a provider and also as a researcher, what other questions do you have still about this disease? So we have lots of questions. We want to figure out um, what makes people with diabetes at higher risk? How can we uh, reduce that risk? Um, clearly that's extremely important. Are there any medications that we're prescribing to treat diabetes that are, would um, help them have a better outcome from COVID or are contributing to their increased risk? Are there certain medications that perhaps should be avoided? Are there other medications that should be added? So there's a, there are a lot of questions um, that we have uh, and um, a lot of people are working on this. Thank you to Dr. Ruth Weinstock. She's a professor of medicine at Upstate and also the chief of the division of endocrinology, diabetes and metabolism at Upstate University Hospital. She's also the 2021 American Diabetes Association President, Medicine and Science. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. What you need to know about cervical cancer next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Cervical cancer is one of the most successfully treatable cancers if it is caught early. Today, I'm talking about this with Dr. Allison Roy. She's an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Roy. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, the cervix is the opening to the uterus. What can you tell us about cancers that begin in the cervix? Sure. As a GYN oncologist, I specialize in cancers of the GYN organs, so uterus, cervix, vagina, vulva, the fallopian tubes, and the ovaries. Cervical cancer is the third most common type of cancer that I see behind uterine and ovarian. And cervical dysplasia, or precancerous lesions, are even more common. Um, this is because cervical cancer is one of the few cancers that we have good screening for, and as you said, very treatable if caught early. What is, you use the term cervical dysplasia, what is that? Sure, so cervical dysplasia is the term that we use for precancerous lesions of the cervix. So these are lesions in the cervix that are, are changes in the cells that are not a cancer yet, but are developing towards becoming a cancer. So that's what you're looking for when you do an exam to see if, if cervical cancer, a, a screening exam, right? Correct. That's what the screening exam or the pap smear and HPV testing are looking for. Now, where along the cervix do cancers arise? Because you mentioned uterine is, is more common, but that's connected to the cervix, right? Yeah, so there's two main histological types of cervical cancer that uh, arise. So one is called a squamous cell cancer, and that comes from the cells kind of on the outside surface of the cervix. There's also something called an adenocarcinoma, which comes from the cells that are more in the canal of the cervix. And we're looking for both when we're screening for cervical cancer. Uterine cancer is actually completely separate from cervical cancer and develops from cells that are inside the body of the uterus, so higher up away from the cervix. So even though geographically they're connected or whatever, the, the cancers that arise are total, they're not related. Correct, they're, they're completely separate types of cancer. Um, you know, cervical cancer could go into the uterus and vice versa, uterine cancer can metastasize or come into the cervix, but the original, like 
a cancer originating in either the cervix or the uterus are actually two separate types of cancer. Let me ask you, are there factors that increase a woman's risk for cervical cancer? Yeah, so cervical cancer, the biggest risk factor that we know of is the human papillomavirus or HPV for short. Um, and a majority of cervical cancers are caused by this virus. So factors that increase your risk of exposure to that virus increase your risk of uh, cervical cancer. So those are things like having multiple sexual partners, having early onset of sexual activity, or things like co-infection with STDs or um, things that suppress your immune system, either medications or medical conditions, because those make you more susceptible to the HPV. Does, uh, let me ask you this, do, does childbearing or the use of birth control pills, does that have any impact on the risk for cervical cancer? So in terms of childbearing, there's thought to be a little bit of an increased risk in patients who have three or more children, but this is more thought to be associated with actually increased risk of exposure to the HPV rather than the actual act of having multiple children. Um, as far as oral contraceptive pills or birth control pills, there is some data that shows a slight increase of risk of cervical cancer with those. And again, that's thought to be because of the changes that those pills um, cause in the cells of the cervix to actually prevent pregnancy. On the other hand, birth control pills are also uh, beneficial and have actually been shown to prevent endometrial cancer and ovarian cancer. So it's a little bit of a balance that way. Well, I do want to get back to HPV. Is this virus only transmitted sexually? Yes, yeah, so HPV is a sexually transmitted virus, so it can be transmitted either vaginal, oral, or anal sex. Now, every woman who gets exposed to HPV, uh, how likely is it that she will go on to develop cervical cancer? So, oftentimes, actually, the immune system is able to clear the virus. Um, and this happens more commonly in younger women. Um, but we do know that the longer the HPV stays around uh, in the cervical cells, the more likely it is to cause those dysplastic changes or those dysplasia, the precancerous changes that then go on to develop um, a cancer. Usually this process happens over the period of several years. Well, I've heard about an HPV vaccine. How effective is that? Yeah, so the HPV vaccine, um, the one you may have heard about is something called Gardasil, um, and it's actually quite effective in preventing the specific types of HPV that it targets. So Gardasil covers um, HPV 16 and 18, which are the two types of HPV that cause 70% of all cervical cancers. And there's actually now a newer version of Gardasil, which covers nine different types of HPV, so it's called Gardasil 9, and that covers that 16 and 18, but also five other high-risk types, as well as the two most common types that cause genital warts. So I highly recommend the vaccine in preventing cervical cancer because it does prevent those HPV um, types that cause, you know, 70% plus um, amount of cervical cancer. And that HPV vaccine, that's for women as well as men to take? Correct. Um, the vaccine is recommended for both boys and girls um, starting at ages 9 to 11, but anyone really up to age 26 should be vaccinated if they haven't been vaccinated previously. So this being sort of a newer vaccine, some of the older members of our community might not have, I mean, they didn't, this wasn't offered when they were those ages. So should they be going back and getting vaccinated at this point? So, you know, someone in their 50s or something? Yeah, so patients that are aged 27 to 45, the FDA has now approved um, the vaccine for that population, but they talk about it as being more of an individualized discussion. And this is what I do for my patients too, based on risk um, of, exposure to HPV in this population, because most patients by age 27 to 45 have already been exposed to a lot of HPV, and so the vaccine is not necessarily as effective as it is in um, the younger population, but it's still recommended to be given in, in certain patients with higher risk factors. Um, it's not necessarily recommended in anyone over the age of 45 at this point. So there's a direct connection between HPV and cervical cancer. What about other cancers? Does this virus cause other cancers? 
Yeah, so the HPV virus is responsible for a couple of different cancers, specifically from the GYN side, um, vaginal and vulvar cancers are also related to the HPV virus, um, as well as anal cancer, and then also some throat uh, cancers are associated with it. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, speaking with gynecologist Dr. Allison Roy about cervical cancers. So let me ask you about screening for cervical cancer. Um, how is that done starting at what age and, and how often? Yeah, so cervical cancer screening is done by performing something called a pap smear, an HPV test, or a co-test, which is both the pap smear and the HPV test together. Um, screening guidelines actually differ a little bit between the American Cancer Society and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists. Um, but based on the, the ACOG or the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists guidelines, this is what most OBGYNs use in their office in terms of recommendations. We recommend starting at age 21 um, with just a PAP test. And we do that every three years until age 30. And then starting at age 30, the recommendation is to perform co-testing, so PAP test as well as a test for HPV. And this is done up until age 65. And then we typically stop after age 65 as long as within the last 10 years, all the screening has been normal. So when you're doing these HPV tests or the PAP tests, is the physician able to visualize if there's a cancer? Can they see it? Sometimes. So very early cervical cancers may not be visualized on just a speculum exam taking a look, or sometimes early dysplasia or those precancerous changes. But we can do a more advanced exam called a colposcopy. And this is actually similar to just a basic pelvic exam where you are up in the stirrups and we put a speculum in to look at the cervix, but we use a solution of acetic acid or vinegar to place on the cervix. And then we look at it with a microscope that's designed to look at the cells. And we can see changes up close in the cervix using that technique. And that's where we can take biopsies to get an actual official diagnosis if we see something that looks concerning. So if, if the pap test comes back irregular, then you would move on to that next step toward getting toward a diagnosis. Correct, yeah. So if the pap test comes back concerning for something, Oftentimes, the next step is to do a colposcopy, which is that specialized exam where we're looking kind of with a microscope at the cervix to see if there's areas that look abnormal. And then to actually diagnose it, we take biopsies of those areas. Are there symptoms of cervical cancer that a woman should be aware of? So there are sometimes no symptoms, but the most common things that happen are bleeding after sex or bleeding between periods or sometimes even new onset heavier bleeding that comes with the period. Um, some patients may also have pelvic pain or pain during sex. All right, so that's something to bring to your doctor's attention. Absolutely, yeah. If you're having you know, new changes with bleeding patterns, those are something that you know, every OBGYN wants to know about um, and is important in terms of screening for um, not only cancers, but other things that could be going on with the uterus or cervix. If you diagnose cervical cancer in a patient, what kinds of information are you able to tell the patient? Um, can, can you tell them how advanced it is, for instance? Yeah, so most of the time we're able to tell based on exam kind of how advanced the cervical cancer is. Um, certainly we use other techniques as, such as imaging um, with either a CT scan or a CAT scan. Uh, MRI is sometimes used, or sometimes a specialized CT scan called a PET CT um, can be used to look to see if the cancer spread outside of the areas that we can directly see with our eyes during an exam. So assuming that this is caught early, um, how is it treated usually? So early, if the cancer is early, oftentimes we can treat it with surgery. Um, so surgery to remove the area of the cancer. It, sometimes in very early cases, this can be done with something called a cold knife cone biopsy, which is basically a cone-shaped wedge out of the cervix that we take to remove the cancer. Or it can be done with removal of the uterus and cervix through a hysterectomy. Sometimes if the cancer is a little bit more advanced, we even do something called a radical hysterectomy, which is basically the same as a hysterectomy, 
but removal of some of the tissue on the sides of the cervix as well, um, called the parametrium. Well, uh, if a woman's been successfully treated for cervical cancers through any of these measures, does she continue to be at risk for redevelopment of cancer? So as with most cancers, there's always a risk of recurrence after treatment. And a lot of how much that risk is depends on factors of the stage of the um, cancer or sometimes even the type of cervical cancer, whether it's that squamous cell cancer that I talked about in the uh, beginning versus the, the glandular or the adenocarcinoma, whether it's coming from that surface of the cervix or the canal of the cervix. Um, so it, there's always a risk. Um, if it's caught early, most patients do really well, um, but there's always a potential of it coming back. So we do monitor afterwards. Well, what impact does cervical cancer have on a woman's life? I, some of the operations you mentioned, the hysterectomy, that would affect her ability to have children, certainly. Um, but does it have an impact on menopause, for instance? Yeah, so a lot of the impact that cervical cancer has really depends, again, on how advanced it is at, at diagnosis and how much um, invasive procedure we have to do to basically treat the cancer. So patients that require a hysterectomy um, may or may not require their ovaries to be removed depending on you know, how advanced the cancer is. The other way that we can treat um, cervical cancer if it's more advanced is with chemo and radiation. And with that or a hysterectomy that requires removal of the ovaries, then you are going to go into menopause with treatment if you're in an age that you're haven't gone through menopause yet. And this is because radiation can affect the ovaries and obviously removal of the ovaries takes away the hormones that you need basically um, that puts you into menopause. And so in some cases, ovarian function can be preserved, but for a lot of patients, you do lose the ovarian function and go into early menopause. However, because cervical cancer is not typically hormonally sensitive, it is possible to give hormone replacement back to young patients who are in early menopause because of treatment. Well, again, it sounds like it's important to be screened for this regularly so that it is caught early so that you have more options and, and more chance for a good recovery. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, this is one of the cancers that we actually do have good screening techniques for. Um, and so catching it early is the biggest thing that we can do. Um, you know, to treat it early, catch it early, even catching it when it's in that pre-cancer stage and removing it then so that you don't go on to develop a cancer. Great. Well, this is wonderful information. Thank you so much to Dr. Allison Roy. She's an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Mimi Herman co-directs Writeaways in France, Italy, and New Mexico. She gave us a poem that offers one answer to a question our medical students often ask. What makes a good doctor? The good doctor. The magic of a miracle pediatrician is mostly memory, not only knowing which drug will halt a headache, which one will speed the course of flu, but also remembering all the relatives, grandma and the Easter chick that grew to peck around the suburban backyard until she became November stew. But you know better than to mention that, recalling instead the stuffed, ear-chewed gray bunny who attended every previous visit but is absent today, and asking after the rabbit's health. The trick to being a good doctor the one your patient's parents stop to thank every time you take your family out to eat, is the practice of the practical, a prescription pad pre-printed with grandma's cough remedy, whiskey, honey, and lemon juice, in the days before we stopped feeding even a little danger to our children, in the days when you knew these ingredients could be found in almost every home, even the ones who couldn't afford a trip to the druggist. 
the good doctor anticipates reactions, the knee-jerk reflex, the bee-swollen throat, the cringe from the needle's kiss, the rare erratic slope from fever to hospital, from automobile accident to grief, the ones he'll miss. Anne Rankin offers her answer to a similar question in her poem, How to Save Someone's Life. How to Save Someone's Life for Brian Rankin. First, examine the eyes for the presence of trauma. Look for other signs the past has dealt a blow the victim cannot bear alone. Check for a pulse of intractable sorrow. You will find it thready, but possibly open to intervention. You'll find the shoulders hunched over. Gently square them parallel with the future. Resist the urge to turn away. Instead, first respond to the disaster yourself. Choose your tourniquet in the shape of the wound. Inject a few words of kindness and note if the other flinches. Touch the forearm to see if you can go further. You will meet resistance. Pain cascades like rain in a storm. You will need patience for the drowning. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how ketogenic diets help children with epilepsy. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.